Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 as we continue to work through the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at the last little bit of verse 18 and all the way through verse 26 this morning. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer again and ask for His help with it. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we come to Your Word, we are thankful again that we know that when we come to it, it is right and true. It's always the same. It is the foundation that we build our faith upon. The truth of Your Word. The truth about how we might be saved through Your work. About what we ought to do in this life and how we ought to live so that we might glorify Your name in all the earth. So Lord, we pray that as we come to this passage that You would teach us these things. We are a stubborn, stiff-necked people, but we are Your people. Teach us today. We pray this in Your holy name. Amen. As I prepared for this passage today, I was reminded of one of my favorite shows growing up as a cartoon, and uh, it was it's the Peanuts Halloween special. I talk about it a lot because it's seriously like one of the best things ever made. Um, like, not even joking, it's top five. Like in all realms of being made. Um, it only came once a year, and so like, my mom would make a big deal out of it. She always made sure we watched it. You know, this was before DVRs, and DVRs not even a thing anymore. Before you could like rewind TV or like go and just watch it someplace else. You know, if you wanted to watch it, that was that one time. Or you'd better have your VCR ready if you wanted to record it. If you wanted to watch it later, of course, now I can watch it as much as I want, which is great. You've probably heard me talk about it before again because it's just so profound. Um, but Linus had this belief that there was this magical being called the Great Pumpkin. And the Great Pumpkin is supposed to bring all kinds of things at Halloween if only your pumpkin patch is sincere. Like you had to have a sincere patch in order for that to occur. If you have a sincere pumpkin patch, he'll bring you all kinds of candy and toys and all kinds of whatnot associated with Halloween, I guess. Uh, but year after year, Linus places his hope in the coming of the Great Pumpkin, and his hope ends up being put to shame. It's a hope that disappoints. It literally brings him to personal shame as well, even, uh, even those around him. So as we work through our passage today, we're going to see the Apostle Paul speaking of a hope that does not disappoint. Rather, there's a hope that is centered upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. While he's going through difficult trials and persecution, his hope remains fixed on Jesus. As we experience trials in this life, we know that we ought to be fixed upon Jesus, but lots of times we are so fixated on ourselves that there's no room for Jesus. Like Linus, we forget the world around us and we even drag others into our self-centered, self-centered little worlds. We miss that God has us here on this earth for His purposes. As we work through this passage, we'll consider what Paul means when he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is a, this is a verse that gets quoted a lot in Christian circles. We really want to live by it. We want, we want this verse to be true in our own lives, right? 
But it's hard because life is hard. Life is full of sin and death. We easily forget the gospel. So as we work through this passage, we're going to be reminded of the clear gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we'll consider three main ideas. Christ-centered joy, a Christ-centered life, and then finally, Christ-centered perspective. And so with me, let's look together at the text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18b, the second part of 18 through verse 26. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Philippians 1, starting there, the second part of 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be at all ashamed, ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So remember last week when we looked at the section just above this that deals with these two competing ways of preaching, one group preaching from what is called a goodwill, preaching from motivation to make Christ known, and the other group preaching out of envy and rivalry, the words that are used here, seeking to afflict Paul in some way as they preached from selfish ambition. Yet remember Paul's summary concerning their preaching in verse in 18, the first part. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He was able to rejoice because Christ was proclaimed regardless of the motivations of those who were preaching. He uses this as a springboard to kind of move into this next session, next section. Yes, I will rejoice. This speaks of another cause of joy in his life. Think about this just for a moment. Another cause of joy in his life is his imprisonment. The average American Christian can't imagine a life like this because we live in first world comfort and pretty much always have. And this is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to live comfortably. I'm not saying that. We just can't imagine not doing so. The idea that someone could take joy in their imprisonment is hard for us. And not just us, but anyone. This is hard for anyone to imagine, right? And hopefully we aren't staring down imprisonment anytime soon. But we all have come to a point in our lives where at some level that we see the comforts of this life as momentary. 
meaning that they cannot satisfy. And when we get to this point, it can cause many to despair. It does. We are in a kind of prison in some ways, but the opposite of Paul's, because we have all the freedom and comfort that we could ever want. Yet we feel, we still feel trapped by our hearts because we always want more than what we have. The tension between self-centered life and a Christ-centered life is very strong in this passage and we see that in first, in what Paul chooses to rejoice. And so this brings us to the first point of Christ-centered joy. Look with me again in 18 and 19. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Just a quick note here concerning uh, Paul's use of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul equates the Spirit of God with the Spirit of Christ. So he's equating Christ as God and Spirit as God here. This is an important note for those who hold to the Trinitarian view of God, which is us in this church, absolutely, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father, are all God, yet are eternally distinct from one another. This verse, like so many, or this verse, like so many others in the New Testament, slams the notion of Unitarian view or a non-Trinitarian view of God. Just needed to say that because it's right there. But the main idea here is that Paul is going to rejoice. He rejoiced in the name of Christ that was being preached, even, even from bad preaching. The name of Christ was being preached. Yet his rejoicing continues as he considers his imprisonment. The two were linked. Because in the end, Jesus is getting the glory for both. Despite the intent of those who preached selfishly or imprisoned a man who committed no real crime. Paul knows that this will lead to his deliverance. And there's a twofold factor here considering how this is going to be accomplished concerning his deliverance. Notice that it is both the prayers of the Philippians and the work of the Spirit that will lead to His deliverance. We believe in a sovereign God who governs all His creatures and all their actions. As the Catechism tells us, as Scripture tells us over and over and over again. We also believe in a God who chooses to use means in order to accomplish His decree. And in this case, and in so many others, the means by which He chooses to do so is the prayers of the saints. When people ask me, you know, concerning my views on God's sovereignty, they'll say, well, I don't understand why you even pray. If you believe that God is sovereign, why do you pray? I pray because I believe He's sovereign. He is able to use my prayers in order to accomplish His divine will. It's pretty simple. He uses that thing in order to accomplish His will. God uses the prayers of the Philippian church to bring about the deliverance of Paul. Or at least that's the idea. But what if that didn't happen? What if Paul wasn't delivered? Well, he has this contingency in mind as he continues to speak. Verse 19, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of, the Jesus, of, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, and this is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul allows for this contingency there in verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed. Paul is living as if his deliverance is a done deal. This is the hope that he has in Christ. 
And it isn't wrong for him to have this hope because it's not a false hope at all. It's a hope that will not be put to shame is what he says. He won't be left wondering what happened. He won't be left looking like Linus in the pumpkin patch each Halloween, wondering why his pumpkin patch wasn't quite sincere enough. His hope is not that his, his hope doesn't have a possibility of disappointment because it doesn't rest upon him. It rests outside of him and one that cannot disappoint. He says this as he goes on. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. The reason his hope cannot be put to shame is because it rests outside of himself in whom all promises are kept. The Son of God is incapable of breaking his promises. And regardless of Paul's circumstances, Jesus will 100% necessarily get the glory. There's no chance otherwise of it. Whether it's the preaching, the preachers attempting to afflict Paul with their preaching or the imprisonment, no matter what it is, Jesus necessarily will get the glory for these things. This is what I call a Christ-centered joy. A joy that lasts because Jesus lasts. Because those people whom He calls by name, we last. Because our spot as joint heirs in Christ, this also lasts for all eternity. Because the work that He has done on the cross on our behalf is finished. Because we have been made secure by His righteousness. There is nothing on this earth that can put Paul to shame. And we should take a similar stance. This is a great difficulty in the Christian life. Because we always expect things to go a certain way. And it's not wrong to have these expectations. In fact, we long, we long for things to be made right. It's, it's okay for us to mourn for the things that are wrong. A dear friend of mine and his wife are watching her mother go through the last stages of her life. There's all kinds of emotions that are associated with this, of course, due to, of course, just the death of a loved one, watching them suffer. All the relationships associated with this, the family relationships, the sad business that goes along with just dealing with someone's death on this earth and dealing with all the, the paperwork and everything that goes along with this. It's just so hard. We may look at this situation and say, how could Jesus get glory in this? The family suffering. This dear saint is suffering because Christ will always be honored in our body, whether by life or death. Because that saint of the Lord, every time she has a lucid moment, only tells her loved ones how she's ready to go see Jesus. That's the only thing she can think about. Because her hope is not in this world. It lies beyond. When our joy rests here alone, here on this earth alone, it is covered in sorrow. And it, in fact, it can't get out from underneath the sorrow. There's so much here. It just piles upon it. There's no possibility of hope here by itself. None. But when it rests in Jesus, it can't possibly be covered by anything. At all. Because Jesus is not here. He's at the right hand of the Father and all hope rests in Him. In fact, all Everything rests in Him. He is making all things new. A hope that is rest in Him cannot be covered. 
Paul other way in other places covers this as well in 2 Corinthians 4. I'll read verses 17 and 18. 4, 17 and 18 says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are unseen are eternal. This light momentary affliction is how Paul characterizes his life of suffering and persecution. Light momentary affliction. Why? Because he compares it to the eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's why Paul could speak these next words in verse 21. This brings us to the Christ-centered life. Look with me at verse 21 again. For to me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a verse that's quoted a lot in Christian circles. It should be. It's very good. It's very pithy. Very full. In these just a few words. Properly understood. It presents us with the tension between the world that we live in and the eternity that we long for. For Paul, the thought of being delivered from prison is his hope. Right? So he can be, be out of prison and be doing ministry. But the idea that his imprisonment could lead and could end in his death isn't all that bad either. To live is Christ, meaning that for him to live, he'll be able to live a life of fruitful labor. As he says in verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. This is a good thing. This is a Christ-centered life. The idea that living another day means Serving the Lord another day. Paul completely embodied this as he served the Lord. He qualified this specifically in verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He was concerned about the Philippian church, the Philippian church and, and all the churches that he had planted and, and was, and was taking care of, the shepherding. It was for it to remain in the flesh is necessary on account of them and others as he, they depended on his leadership. He knew that his role was an important one and he hated to leave this earth. Yet, the call of an eternity with, with Christ is, is strong. To die is gain. He said that he's hard-pressed between these two realities. Verse In verse 22, Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart to be with Christ for that is far better. When we read this passage, it makes us think that think of death naturally, as it represents kind of the the edge of that divide between this world and the next world. Obviously, it is. It's just about that, right? It's about him seeing his his death coming up and, and wondering if this is going to be the end. Death represents that moment we are no longer on this earth, but and in the Lord we are. With Jesus, we read that in other places in the scriptures that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so Paul longed for this day. It's not a final moment. Death is not a final moment for anyone. There is no final moment in that regard. We are all eternal. Death is just kind of the, a step in, in our eternity. The believer, of course, longs for a life with Jesus eternal. The unbeliever will have a life of eternal torment without Jesus. 
For Christians, the life of torment, or this life is torment for us many times, because rather than seeing each day as an opportunity to serve the Lord, we see each day as a day of something that we have been shorted. We see each day as an experience of misery because of the sin that we experience in our own lives or perhaps someone else's sin on us and setting on us. It represents a kind of hell on earth where we want nothing more than to leave. We can't share Paul's sentiment here in 21 that to live is Christ and to die is gain because we believe oftentimes that to live is sorrow and to die would be an escape. We look at our pumpkin patch and we believe it to be insincere enough. We can't believe the great pumpkin would pass us over of all people. And we put our shame in this false hope in the world. This is a picture of the self-centered life. Each one of us to one degree or another travels down this road for sure all the time. Some to lesser degree than others. Some for longer periods of time than others. I know that when I've, when I've started down this road is when I began to seek out self-pity, when I begin to compare myself to others, when I let circumstances dictate my joy, I wonder why the great pumpkin seemed to stop at their patch and not mine. I start to believe that life is really about me doing things here for me, and that is the end goal. We all struggle with this when we forget that Jesus has eternal victory over sin and the grave. And that we, as His people, share victory in these things. We too have victory over sin and the grave. Not because we have fought the fight and have conquered those things, but because Jesus has done it. When we forget this, brothers and sisters in Christ, understand what we are forgetting. We are forgetting the gospel. For Paul, prison couldn't possibly rob him of his joy because whatever the outcome, he was secure in Christ. Jesus was going to get the glory no matter what happened, whether he got to live on this earth and continue to do ministry or whether he was taken home with Jesus for all eternity. That was good. Whatever would happen to him, he knew that his hope wasn't built upon his changing circumstances, rather upon his unchanging Lord. When I counsel folks who are stuck in depression or dealing with anxiety or some other sort of something like that, this is where I will often go to these passages because it's, and it's not to discount the fact that depression and, and anxiety are real mental problems. They are, but they're only there because of the fall, because of sin. They're ultimately spiritual problems that do not have a hold on the believer because Jesus has a hold on the believer. That doesn't mean that we won't struggle with these things. We always will, this side of glory, absolutely. Yet while the unbeliever has no hope, they have no hope on this earth for, for these things. They can just try to find something, and that something ends up not being a hope, but ends up being a kind of escape. Substance abuse. So many other things are not a hope for this world. They're an escape from this world. But the believer has hope in Christ. Therefore, to live is Christ. Even in the darkest times, we can say that. Paul's writing this letter from a prison. And it's not like prisons today. 
Paul didn't get fed unless his friends and family brought food to him. The prisoners didn't feed him. This is a horrible place for him to be, and yet he's writing these things to a church that he'll probably never see again. And it's this perspective that helps us to deal with our own day-to-day, and that brings us lastly to the Christian-centered perspective. Look with me again at verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So for the apostle, while he would love to be with Jesus, his desire to be here is much greater because he loves the work that he's been called to do. We've gone through a little short series on Wednesday nights on vocation where we talked about how our vocation, our calling in life is the thing that Christ has called us to do and how it has this wide application, not just simply like ministry work, but our families and, and and our occupations and all the things that we do. Paul's whole life was gospel ministry, which isn't necessarily a goal. A lot of times when we look at his life, we think, oh, I just want to be like Paul. He was single. He had no children. He was largely supported by the church where he, churches where he ministered. This is something that he was able to pull off, obviously due to his special calling as an apostle, but practically just because his station in life was so much different than the average person today. So when we Look at Paul's life. We're not thinking, man, I just want to do that. For most of us, of course, our lives look very different. But that doesn't mean worse at all. I think a lot of times, again, we read his ministry and we think this is the end goal, that his journeys are where we should be doing. We should be doing this kind of ministry. That's not it. He was an apostle. This was a different kind of time and place. The end goal isn't to repeat his lifestyle, rather to have his perspective on life. It wasn't about how wrong it was for him to experience difficulty, but rather about how he was going to serve the Lord. We serve the Lord best when we live according to this calling that we have been called. Whatever it is, at home, in the workplace, in society, at church, whatever our calling is, when He has called us to that thing, we are happiest. We are have the most joy when we are living according to that calling. It is good for us to be here because while we are here, we are able to serve the Lord. Paul's perspective was colored by how the Philippians would be able to glory in Christ because of Him. We see that in verse 26. So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. His greatest goal was that they would look at his life and praise the Lord because of him. Not praise him, not praise Paul, but to praise the Lord because of Paul's life. He wasn't looking for a claim. He didn't attribute any of these things to himself. Rather, he passed it all on to the Lord Jesus who deserves all the glory. And I say this morning because for the unbeliever, I've mentioned this briefly, but I want to go into it again. This is impossible because they do not know Jesus. The end goal for the unbeliever is as much personal glory as they can gather while they live on this earth. To gather as as much dust around them as possible while they're here. And while they gather dust, what are they hoping? They're hoping that everyone's watching. See how much dust I've piled up. Oh, well, he's got a little bit more dust than me. And it's just this constant race to see who can gather the most things around them 
that are not eternal so that they can get the glory. That is their end. That is their only possible end. Because at the end of that, that's where the dust stays. It stays here. And they move on. There is no hope beyond the grave for the unbeliever. If that's you here today, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. It's only in Him that you can have a hope that is not put to shame. For the believer, we're called to live a life that isn't centered upon personal gain, but rather a life that lifts up the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever the Lord ordains is right for our lives, we are called to live in it. To live is Christ. While we are here, let us do so so that the name of Jesus Christ will be lifted up and glorified. Let's go to Him in prayer.